0: my very first day of law school I was in the University at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in fall of 2008 and in fact it was my first class at law school it was constitutional law I was in a large section of uh, people together we shared I think virtually all if not all of our first-year courses And uh, this class was probably, I would guess, 70 or 80 people big, so it was in a large lecture hall, all of these people that we had never met before or barely met, and there was just this nervous energy. Right. If you've ever started school, you remember that first day of class, and everyone's nervous. They don't know what it's going to be like. They've probably heard the horror stories about the Socratic method and how professors ask you questions and the like. And There's just this kind of murmur, and the professor walks in. He walks right up to the front, and uh, he, he kind of clears his throat, looks down at the seating chart, and he looks up and he says, Mr. Magnuson, is there a Mr. Magnuson here? And I'm just sitting there thinking, what are the odds? He told me later um, it was just because my name happened to be in the middle. right? I'm just kind of in the M. He just kind of found some place in the middle. That would be a really nice time to have a really unpronounceable last name. You're never going to get called on in the first day of class. Um, But unfortunately, Magnuson was good enough for him, and he called it out. He said he was going to ask me um, one of the most important questions in all of constitutional law. And my heart rate is going at about 160 at about that point, And I'm surrounded by all my new classmates. He said, Mr. Magnuson, did you eat breakfast this morning? And I think it was late morning, and I often don't eat breakfast. And I said very honestly, no, I hadn't. And that was perfect. That was a perfect answer for him. Because what he wanted to suggest, he said, if... If uh, you know studies have shown eating breakfast is a good idea, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, he said it's a good idea, and so I want you to um, imagine that Congress decided to pass a law on that everyone in the country needed to eat breakfast. Now, Mr. Magnuson, do you think that would be constitutional? And I'm just sitting there thinking, there's got to be a good answer here. There's got to be a good answer here. Let me try to think. Let me try to be a lawyer. Well, I told him, I said, I don't think so, because that seems like you'd have a right to decide whether you get to eat breakfast or not. I thought that was a pretty good answer. The answer he ultimately led us to through a little bit of dialogue Uh, was that Congress was not empowered by the U.S. Constitution to make such a law, and because Congress is a body of limited jurisdiction, a limited power under the Article 2 of the, Article 1 of the Constitution, excuse me, um, that that would probably not fall within its power. In any event, I can tell you I very much was not prepared for that kind of immediate question and answer. And whether or not you have found yourself in a similar situation in your first class on your first day of law school or not, you probably have been in a period of time in your life when you were not prepared. You were not ready to speak. One of the most remarkable stories I've heard about my father was when he was on a Reformation tour. Some of you may have been on this Reformation tour with him, and uh, he was going through, uh, you know, Europe and the other places where the Reformation took place, and he received a call on the tour bus with this group on his cell phone, and they told him, um, yes, uh, Mr. Magnuson, um, you are, we are on the last hymn. You're just about to speak. And my dad had totally forgotten that he had been booked to give the commencement address at a homeschool graduation. And even though he had told them he would be out of the country, they said, well, we can do it to the cell phone. He had totally forgotten, and he was completely unprepared, and it was the last time. It was right before Uh, he was on to speak. Thankfully, he told me he had some material on John Calvin that he was able to turn very quickly into a commencement address, and I promise you not one person in that audience knew um, any the better. But in any event, again, whether your examples of readiness have been dramatic or not, we all have that feeling of being ready. And what I want to do tonight when we have been going through our series on evangelism, how are we going to share the gospel boldly with those around us as we've gone from our small groups to see how people in the Bible gave the gospel, how Jesus gave the gospel, how Paul gave the gospel, how Peter gave the gospel, how Philip gave the gospel. Over and over again, we've seen different methods, different modes of presentation The verse that came to mind that I wanted to speak on tonight was this, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open it to that verse. In context here, Peter is talking to a group of people that were facing and about to face an even greater amount of persecution and tribulation. And Peter has just finished getting done laying out an extensive teaching on submission. The importance of Christians being submitted to their governments. The importance of Christian workers being submitted to their bosses, to their employers. The importance of Christians even being willing to suffer patiently, submissively to God. The importance in chapter 3 of Christian wives being in submission even to unsaved husbands. The importance in verse 6 here, or I'm sorry, in verse 7, the importance of husbands being subject in submission, in a sense, to their wives' needs, to dwell with them according to knowledge, to give honor unto the wife as under the weaker vessel. And then in verses 8 through 12, focusing on how we are in submission to each other. We're in subjection to each other. He says in verse 8, we are to be all of one mind, to have compassion one another, to love as brethren, to be pitiful or compassionate, to be courteous to one another, and to live as a Christian. But he notices that even if we are doing all of those things, if we are submission is submitted to our government, submitted to our employer, submitted in the face of suffering, submitted to, in our marital and family relationships, submitted in our church relationships, we still might face opposition. And so notice what he says in verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Now I want you to think about that question for a moment. Who is he that will harm you? He's giving a rhetorical question. He's he's saying, generally speaking, if you do what is right and what is good, who's going to harm you? Your testimony is going to speak for itself of love and of your charity toward all. But notice he says, there may be an exception, verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, he recognizes that sometimes we may indeed suffer only for doing what's good and what's right. He says, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. He's quoting the Old Testament here. And now our verse, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The title of the message tonight is simply, Be Ready. Be ready. And the simple question that I'll have for all of us tonight is, are you ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. If we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, it is going to be because we are ready always. We are prepared. Three aspects of this readiness that I want to speak about tonight. First of all, ready, why? Why should we be ready? Secondly, ready For what? What are we readying ourselves to do? And thirdly, ready how? How will we have this kind of readiness and preparation that Peter is challenging us to today? First point, ready why? Now the immediate answer if we were to say why should we be ready is because the Bible commands it. That should be good enough for us. But I want to ask, have you ever considered that my and your unreadiness, lack of preparation to defend our faith is a sin? The sin of being unprepared? Which is to say that if I am here tonight at Straight Gate and I know that I am unprepared to share the hope that is in me, I am in sin. Because the command is that I am to be ready Always, ready, always. Now notice again in verse 15, we need to understand the context, the the idea here that Peter's trying to give us. Notice verse 15 in the second phrase, be ready always to give an answer, we're gonna get to that, to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Now, there are a bunch of component parts there. Now, what is presupposed? What is Peter presupposing when he says, you be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks you? What is he presupposing? Assuming that someone is going to ask you. Did you notice that? When Peter says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you, what he's saying is, I'm assuming someone's going to ask you. Ask you what? Notice what he says. To every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. The idea here is of the hope that is within you. So what's he saying? We need to understand, first of all here, what he means by the hope that is in you. That's the foundation. That's the bottom line. He says, I am assuming that people are going to ask you about the hope that is in you. And when they ask you, you need to be prepared to give an answer. That's the the idea of the argument that he's making. So, what I want to ask you, what is the hope that is in you? And to answer this question, Let me encourage you, when you're dealing with a question, a word that you don't understand, a phrase that you don't understand in the Bible, start with the same book that you are interpreting. If you want to know what Peter might think of when he's writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about hope, you should ask yourself, hmm, I wonder if Peter talks about hope anywhere else in 1 Peter. And if you would just follow that, you would have a good, uh, just a good first step in studying out your Bibles. How do I understand these concepts that are being presented? So guess what? Do you think Peter talks about hope anywhere else in 1 Peter? Yes. I came prepared for this. Okay, folks? Yeah, I came prepared. I came ready. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, will you? I think this is going to give us, I hope, a real understanding of what Peter is suggesting here. Peter begins this epistle in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect... The strangers that are scattered abroad are elect. They've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now notice what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, has, has borne us again unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see that? He's saying it is the inheritance of every Christian to have a living hope, not a dead hope, a hope, in other words, that I feel, a hope that is real to me, a hope that I'm experiencing in my daily life. Not something that I know intellectually, but that I know experientially. In the same way, that I could try to describe something that I've never tasted before or never seen before, just simply by what others have described it, or the difference between I am tasting something right now and I'm experiencing it and I'm communicating it to you like that. Peter is saying that we have a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now what is that hope? Notice what he's going to tell us in verse 4. This hope is that we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away. It's entirely permanent, reserved in heaven for you. Now, what would you describe in Peter's mind is the hope, the living hope that he expects to be in you? What would you say it's about? Your eternal inheritance. Your eternal security in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 5. Who? That's us. We are kept. We are guarded. We are protected by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Someone asked me this morning after church. They said, do you ever wonder? I've just been thinking, have you ever think about whether your faith is strong enough, whether your faith is big enough, whether you have enough faith to hold on, and I was able to share with him. I said, you know, my friend, the question is not whether you have enough faith. The question is whether God is faithful enough to hold you. That is the ultimate question. Who are kept by the power of God through faith, not beyond faith or around faith. Yes, it is through faith, but they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What hope is he talking about? He's talking about something that we haven't seen, that we have not yet personally experienced. Our final salvation in the culmination of God's redemptive plan In his ultimate salvation of us in a resurrected body, in a new heaven and a new earth. We talked about that this morning from Hebrews 11. Those that were willing to be tortured because they were putting all their hope in a better resurrection. A better resurrection that they could not see right then. So what is the hope, again, that Peter is suggesting that every Christian should have in them? It is the hope of something in eternity, of something in the future, of a full and final complete salvation that you are experiencing in part right now. We do experience our salvation in Jesus Christ right now in the present, and yet permanently and finally and perfectly in the future. And here's what he's suggesting. In chapter 3, he's suggesting if you manifest that hope in your daily life, people are going to ask you about it. Now, do you know how true that is in our culture today? We are experiencing in our world today a crisis of despair and hopelessness. And it's not just Christians who are talking about it. I saw something remarkable about this crisis. In June 2020, the CDC released data that suggests one in four adults ages 18 to 24 have considered suicide. 25% of 18 to 24 year olds. Not long ago, there was a Harvard Youth Poll of over 2,500 Americans ages 18 to 29. 51% of these young Americans said that at least several days in the previous two weeks, they had felt down, depressed, or hopeless. Half, half of our young people around that age group are feeling regular despair and hopelessness. Now what happens when they see someone who never seems hopeless? How are they going to respond when they see someone who, no matter what's going on at work, always seems to be optimistic about the future? Never seems to be looking ahead with despair because they have a settled hope, a living hope, a lively hope within them about the future. You say, what does this hope look like? Turn over to Romans chapter 8, will you? Romans chapter 8. I was just emailing with someone recently about this idea, this wonderful verse we know so well. Verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he knew in advance, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? What do we say to the doctrine that we believe about our destination as the children of God? This is what we say. If God be for us, who can be against us? Do you know what that is? Hope. Sure. Culture align against us. We're not going to abandon our Christian testimony to try to gain political power. What we're going to do is we're going to stand in hope because if God be for us, who can be against us? That's what we're going to do. What does hope say? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God, you're going to freely give me all things, whether I see it with these earthly eyes or not. What comes next? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, rather, that is risen again. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He then says, for I am persuaded, in verse 38, that none of these things, he goes through the entire list, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of my favorite hymns that we sing out of our dark blue hymnal is, through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. And a person who has a living hope is the person who says, all will be well. All must be well be well. It does not matter what I'm seeing. It does not matter what I'm feeling. It does not matter what I'm experiencing. All will be well. Why? Because I have an eternal inheritance undefiled and that fades not away reserved in heaven for me. All must be well. All will be well. You see, that's what a living hope looks like. And the Christian who has a living hope in a world, in a sea of despair and hopelessness, are going to get questions. Why are you optimistic all the time? Why do you always seem to be upbeat? Why don't things seem to get you down like they do other people? Why aren't you pessimistic about everything we see around us? And that is when you're going to be prepared. That's when you're going to be ready to give an answer, to say, you want to know why I have hope? You want to know why I'm not despairing? Let me tell you, there's an answer. So notice here, it's about the hope that lies within us and we should expect to be asked about it. And when should we be expected to be asked about it? At any time. That's why he said be ready always in regards to any person. In other words, you and I should be walking around daily expecting an opportunity to testify to our hope. We should be walking around looking at every person and saying, wow, I wonder if that person is going, there's going to be an opportunity with this person to give an answer about my hope, with this colleague, with this neighbor. I am ready always. Now let me pause there for one moment. Is your hope living enough and visible enough that you're likely to get asked about it? Is the way you present yourself to the people around you So hope-filled and so hopeful that those people are going to see you as different from them. If not, we are not truly coming into what Peter is anticipating the life of the Christian is going to be like. Those who have hope in themselves. The hope of an eternal inheritance with Jesus Christ. So first of all, why should we be ready? Because Peter is assuming that a radiant Christian life will be manifesting a hope that the world knows nothing about, and they're going to say, what's going on? They are going to have an opportunity for you to present and to give an answer. Secondly, notice ready for what? Ready for what? Now again, Let's take this verse again. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Now, let's just stop right there again with this idea of hope. My answer is to be about my hope. Now, I want to say this to be encouraging to you. Because sometimes this verse is presented as just something, or maybe we think about it, as something too monumental for me to take on. We see the person on YouTube who's an apologetic, who does such a gifted job of overcoming the questions of skeptics. And we say, I could never do that. I could never defend every aspect of my faith. I could never un- just defend the, all the history of the Bible. I could never understand. I'm not like that. I don't have that ability. And here's the point I want to make. That's not what Peter's asking. Peter's not asking you to, t- to take the rest of your life to try to become the most gifted apologetic. God may call some of you to that, and if that's true, Wonderful. There's a place for that in the body of Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. What's he talking about here? Defend your hope. Talk about the hope that you have. You see, that makes it significantly less, at least to my mind, overwhelming. Because it relates to something that I have experienced. Now again, there's a much different uh, 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 thing. When I am asked to defend some kind of intellectual exercise, like I'm preparing and defending a, 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 my doctoral thesis. Defending a doctoral thesis is rigorous work. It is intimidating work. It is overwhelming work. Do you know it's not so overwhelming? To say, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Why did you eat that for breakfast this morning? What do you normally eat for breakfast in the morning? You know, we can answer those questions, I hope. And it's a different thing here than what Peter is suggesting for someone to come and say, you know what, let's go on an apologetic debate right now on every aspect of the Christian faith that you believe. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's saying, are you ready to give a defense? Are you ready to give an answer for your hope that you're experiencing right now? In other words... If someone were to say to you tonight, why do you believe that you are going to heaven one day? Would you be ready to give a defense? If someone were to say to you, why are you so cheerful? Why are you so optimistic? You seem to have a joy in your life that I don't. What would you say? Would you be ready right now to say, I can tell you. I'll tell you. It is so different when we realize that ultimately our first calling is to be prepared to give a witness of what we have experienced, of what we have tasted, of what we have seen ourselves. And that leads me to wonder, frankly, why some of the reason we, I, am not as an effective witness as we should is because my hope isn't living enough. Because the hope that is inside me is not alive enough to my reality, to my consciousness, where it's simply overflowing and looking for opportunities to say, you know what, there is an eternal hope in front of me. And let me tell you why I know it's true. We can be like those who are prepared to give witness, testimony to things we only know intellectually to be true, And not personally to be true. I was reminded of that story from 2 Samuel 18. Do you remember after that story of of Absalom rebelling against David? And Absalom is killed. And there are two guys, two young guys that want to run and give the news to David. One of them is Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, the priest. He's an important young man. He's the son of the priest. And he says, can I run? Can I go tell David? And Joab is smart. Joab says, no, not you. Now, why does he say, no, not him? Have you ever heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Do you know why there's such a phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Because messengers got shot sometimes. In fact, David Do you remember when that young man brought him the probably false fictional news that Jonathan and Saul had been killed and that he himself had killed them and what David's response was? Thank you very much and now you're dead. And Joab undoubtedly said, I don't want Ahimeaz bringing the news that Absalom's dead. He might get killed. And so he says, no, Ahimeaz, not you. Cushi, my boy Cushi, you run. And do you know what he said to him? He said, he said, go tell the king what you have seen. Go tell the king what you have seen. And then you remember the story. Cushi takes off running and Ahimeaz is the Usain Bolt of his day and just takes, overtakes him on those planes and goes flying past him and he gets to David first and David says, what's the news? And he says, well, all's well. And David says, is, is my son okay? Is Absalom alive? He says, Saw a big tumult over there around Joab, but didn't know what's going on. And then Cushy comes, and Cushy is the one who has seen. He knows. He understands. And he gives the first-hand account, thankfully. He didn't die. But what am I saying? I'm saying that sometimes when we are witnessing, we can be those people a little bit like Ahimeas. Yeah, there's some truth over here that I know intellectually. Here's what I believe and why I've listed it out. And yet we simply are not prepared to say what we've seen what we've experienced, why our hope is alive, why it is real to our consciousness. And so notice here, what we are need to be ready for is something personal, personal to what we have experienced. But then notice it can't just be something personal. It needs to be something universal. Because again, go back to verse 15. You need to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you, A reason of the hope that is in you. Do you see that? A reason. Now it's very interesting. This word in the Greek is the word logos. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. What's the idea? The idea here is that your reason is to be something of logic. It is to be something of a true, reasonable response. We take what is personal to us and we explain why it is universal. others. You see, in our world today, we are very comfortable to say what is personal to us. Here's how I feel about things. Here's what I see about things. But what you feel and see is totally fine. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that what I have experienced, you can experience too, and you must experience it if you are to be right with God. And so the reason that we are relying on what we have personally experienced must be based on what is objective, on what is objectively true. It is a reason. Now, why do I say this? It's because two things are very important for us to be ready to share. By being personal to us, we are rejecting those who want to be solely rational and skeptical peter is making clear that our testimony is coming from something that we have experienced personally not just something that we think intellectually but also what he is teaching us is that we are not like mystics who just say here is what i feel here is what i have experienced it must be backed up with something objective with something universal. And the reason is because any new age person, any new age mystic is more than happy to tell you what they've experienced. They're more than happy to tell you what they feel. I'll never forget, we went to Sedona, Arizona, Tabitha and I last year, and I, I, what I realized, and we learned even more when we were there, Sedona, Arizona is the New Age capital of the world. You would not imagine and believe, the, at least of the United States, you would not believe the line that was coming out of the New Age Center at Sedona. The number of palm readers, the number of all these astrology folks, every wacky thing in the world finds its place in Sedona, Arizona. And we were staying at an Airbnb. And this guy at the Airbnb was in absolute, I mean, he was devoted to New Age philosophy. We walked toward that house, and all these different rooms in this house, and there were New Age um, statues and all these other things around these grounds. I remember him telling Tabitha when we came in, she was pregnant with Emma at the time, and he said, oh, I, I, I am able to tell whether you're having a boy or a girl. And he said, I'm able to tell because... When when uh, uh, when you're having a girl, then your face exhibits the woman overcompensates, and, and her face shows more masculine features. And if it's a boy, she her body compensates in feminine. I mean, just nonsense, right? Just absolute craziness. And so, of course, Tabitha and her sister Joanna was there. They weren't going to let him get by. You know, fast. So he said, "Okay, well, what do you think?" And he immediately starts backpedaling. I'm like, well, you know, you know. And he said, "I think you're having a girl." And he was right. Which led, of course, my, my very tart-tongued sister-in-law, very sweetly to ask, so you're saying she looks like a guy? Um, or something along the lines you would not believe how fast that guy backpedaled. It was, it was impressive. No football cornerback has backpedaled that fast. Um, but in any event, all that to say, if we are just talking about what is experienced by us, We are simply going to be going into that kind of mystical camp. And that's not what scripture is calling us to do. We are to give a reason. Now notice what he says here again in verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. An answer to every man that asks you a reason to hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's one more thing that we need to see here. This word answer is actually a kind of legal term. It is used in our New Testaments to describe giving an answer in a legal sense, or it's also translated to give your defense. Like when Peter or when Paul stood up being arrested and asked to make his defense to the people, same word. What he's saying is you are defending the hope that is in you. You are giving a legal position, an answer, a formal or informal defense to why you are, you have the hope that you do. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Is that the way you tend to speak to people about the gospel? When someone gives you an opportunity to present the living, real hope that is within you, are you prepared to give a reasoned defense? What I'm suggesting to you tonight is that every single one of us is commanded to be ready to do just that. So, first of all, ready why? Because the hope that is in us should be provoking questions from those that are around us. Ready for what? To defend the hope that is in us, to defend what we have personally experienced with what is universally true for others. How they can experience that hope. How they can experience and have this inheritance for them as well. How they can be grounded in the faith that you are. Thirdly, ready how. How will we be ready? The reason that I want, what I want to encourage you tonight, is really something practically from Peter's life. Because Peter was the one who knew what it was both to be completely unprepared and to be completely prepared. When Peter was unprepared was when he followed Jesus of Nazareth from a distance to the house of the high priest. And a young woman asked him the very anodyne question, Well, you were with him, weren't you? And Peter is immediately stammering. He is immediately retreating, utterly then saying, denying Jesus and saying, absolutely not. Now fast forward a few short months And at the drop of a hat at Pentecost, the Spirit comes and he's standing up and preaching a message to hundreds, if not thousands. And then you just see chapter after chapter, the authorities come up to him and say, Peter, stop preaching. And he said, here, I got another sermon for you. Let me give it out to you. And in all of these messages... Not just is he giving something that he's personally witnessed. He's tying it back to scripture. He's using the Old Testament to say, this is why what is true for me is true for you too. Because the promise of God to our fathers is being fulfilled. Now notice two things there. To be prepared. Peter needed to have a hope that only the resurrection of Christ could give. When Jesus looked like he was heading to death, Peter could only stand afar off and say, I better protect myself. I better watch out for my own back, even if it means denying Jesus. And then when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and Peter knew it, suddenly you couldn't shut him up. His hope was living, it was alive. And he couldn't help but proclaim the things, as Scripture said, that he had seen and heard. So my first question to prepare, to give an answer, to be ready, is have you engaged with your hope? What is your hope of heaven based on, friend? What is your hope of an eternal life with God rooted in? Why are you convinced that you're going to heaven one day? Why are you convinced that there is an eternal, secure future for you? If you don't understand that question, you're certainly not going to be able to defend it to others. So first of all, are you experiencing the living hope? And do you understand the reason for the hope that you are experiencing? To be prepared, we need to engage with our hope and to be grounded in what we have experienced. But secondly, not only do we need to engage with our hope of what we have experienced, but remember also, what did Jesus do with all the disciples immediately uh, after his resurrection for 40 days? Do you remember? Do you remember when those two on the road to Emmaus bumped into Jesus and they didn't realize it was Jesus? And Jesus goes to sit down to a meal with them and they're asking him, don't you understand what happened in Jerusalem? You aren't, are you a stranger? And Jesus says, oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that was prophesied of me. And it says, then opened he their understanding and they understood Jesus. The scriptures. He went through the scriptures with them. Luke 24 tells us the same thing with his disciples. Jesus opened their understanding and they went through the scriptures together. Acts chapter 1 tells us the same thing. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here's my point. It wasn't just enough for Peter to know and be convinced that Jesus was alive and that he had an eternal hope. He had to be grounded in the scriptures. And Jesus himself was the one who taught him, who gave him that kind of teaching in the scriptures. Here's my point. If you want to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you, You need to be in this book, not just for the purposes of reading it, but for the purposes of studying it and knowing it. Friend, if I were to ask you tonight, I want you to give a verse to explain to someone how you can be certain that, that your sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ, would you have an answer right there? Would you just say, All right, I know I can do that? If you were to be asked, How do you know there is such a thing as heaven? Does the Bible talk about heaven? Would you be able to say, let me take my Bible and I can show you where that verse is? If someone were to say, does the Bible talk about how I can be forgiven of my sin? Does the Bible talk about how I can be certain that Jesus died for my sins? In other words, take what your hope is based on and ask yourself, do I know how to support it from the Bible? Do I know how to take someone through the Bible and show them how they can be saved? How they can have a hope. Yes, what is personal, be grounded in it. But yes, what is universal, be prepared in it. Be studied. Have verses memorized. Have verses written out. Have verses, as someone said, in, in maybe in, um, in flashcards. If you don't know if you're able to memorize them, if you carry around a purse, have your flashcards of scripture verses that will help lead someone to, the, to, 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 to Christ and have them in your purse, have them in your car, have them in your, uh, 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 in your work desk, wherever you're going to be, whatever it is, are you ready? Are you ready to give an answer? There's one more thing that I want to encourage you in not just to be prepared in what is personal, not just to be prepared in what is universal, but also to be prepared in what is individual. And what I mean is simply this. If you are going to be prepared to give an answer to every person that asks you, you and I need to be prepared to know and discern how to give the gospel effectively to different kinds of people. Isn't that what we've been seeing in our small groups? That each one of these examples has been someone sharing the gospel in a different way, defending the hope that was in them in a different way. To me, it's a little bit like something I learned about as an organ player. When I was studying organ, I was fascinated by the concept of improvisation. And organ improvisation is a really big deal for those who are who are involved in it. I remember I went to a concert once by a man named Olivier Latry. He, was one of, he is one of the three organists at Notre Dame in Paris, one of the greatest, most well-known organists in all the world, and an incredible improvisate tour. At the end of his concert that I attended, someone walked up and put a, a, a sheet of music or a, a something that he was supposed to play. It was Ein Festiburg, a mighty fortress is our God. And immediately on the spot, he played about a 10- or 15-minute piece spontaneously just based on that theme. And I just fascinated me. How can someone do that? And I was talking to my organ professor about it, and he said, you know, I'm not really an improvisateur either, but I studied with one of the great American improvisateurs, and he said this is what he told me. He said improvisation is just like a magician who knows a ton of tricks, who has a huge bag of tricks, and he knows when to use them. And on the organ that means I have a whole bunch of tricks that I can play in any different key and I just know when to put them in so it sounds like a complete piece. And do you know what being a really effective defender of your hope is? It's having a bunch of not tricks, but of scripture. A whole bunch of different things in your toolbox, a whole bunch of different truths that you can defend from different ideas to to answer your hope that is in you. And by faithful study and memorization and preparation in the scripture, you can pull from that bag to bring people where they are to give a compelling answer, a compelling defense of the hope that lies in you. Now, does this sound intimidating? I hope not. I hope we can start from where what we are experiencing personally and move to what is universal. But I do want to drive this home. To be unprepared to give the gospel of Christ is a sin. To be unprepared to defend and to answer a question about the hope that is in me is in rebellion to what has God has called for every Christian, not just the pastor, not just the missionary, not just the evangelist. And over the next several weeks, what we're going to do here at church is we are going to try to give you some tools to be able to proclaim the gospel, to identify the Bible passages that you need to memorize, to find some methods that people have found helpful for themselves. We're going to go through the Romans road. We're going to go through in a very short way evangelism explosion. We're going to go through some other things that I hope will encourage you to be ready, to be ready with God's word, to take what has happened to you personally and be able to share what is true universally. May God give us grace. May we prepare to be ready for anyone who asks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the challenge that you have for us tonight. And Father, I do ask that where our hope has been dimmed, where our hope is not so much like a living hope, maybe it's an intellectual hope, maybe it's a theological hope, a doctrinal hope, but it is not a living hope. I pray, Father, that you would stir faith in our hearts Would you stir us to go back to your word and to be grounded in what is true and why it is true for us? Let's pause for a moment. How is God speaking to you and challenging you tonight? Are you ready? Are you ready to give an answer? Or have you recognized that there's more preparation that needs to be done? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to illumine and teach us tonight. Father, thank you that we have been begotten to a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. May that hope truly be